PitchShot Money is brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Designed for active traders and sophisticated investors, Interactive Brokers offers trading assets in 150 markets with 27 different currencies. Interactive Brokers also charges USD margin loan rates from 5.83% to 6.83%. They've also got the ability to trade stocks, bonds, futures, options, commodities, and more, all from a single unified platform. Brett and I use Interactive Brokers ourselves, and I honestly have to say that if you spend a considerable amount of time managing your investments, if you're spanning the globe looking for new stocks, I highly recommend using Interactive Brokers as your platform of choice. Restrictions apply, but for more information, visit ibkr.com, member SIPC, open an account with IBKR today. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan, Brett, or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. This is Chit Chat Money, the investing power hour number 87 only 13 or I guess 12 away, maybe, depending how you calculate it, from hitting triple digits here. And we have two special guests today, Jason Hall and Jeff Santoro, formerly of the Smattering Podcast, but it's a little tease. You guys have this new venture, or it may not, it's not a new venture. You've started this podcast, but we're doing a little name change, and maybe you guys can explain why. Yeah, the, the, people, that, the people that ran the Smattering, frankly, they were kind of hard to deal with. Yeah, very big divas. Um, we had a Worse. falling out with them. Yep. yep. So we broke uh, up and decided to start a new podcast called Investing Unscripted, which is exactly the same podcast. And we're working for exactly the same people because those people are me, Jason Hall, and Jeff Santoro. We're, we're the people. Yes. So thank you for having us on, guys. Um, we, we did change the podcast name. We we loved the name The Smattering, but what we learned over time was that even though it is an actual word in the English dictionary, not everybody knows what it is or what it means. Um, we also were not doing ourselves any favor with you know like organic search results when people just type in investing podcast. It's not intuitive that that's what it was. So nothing should change uh, for anyone watching this or listening to this later who is a subscriber to our podcast. Nothing should change. The logo looks almost the same. It's the same feed. Uh, it's just called something different now. So if you see anything come across your feeds under the name Investing Unscripted, that is us. That is the smattering just rebranded. So uh, this is the the world premiere announcement of that. So you guys you guys got some exclusive content here on on the Power Hour. Yeah, and we've talked about this as well. We might I don't know. Depends. We haven't had any formal decision, but we've talked about having doing doing a little tweak as well because chit chat money we actually don't talk about money that much we just talk about stocks but uh i think for any listeners you might we're maybe going to do a cross run on one of the smattering episodes actually excuse me hmm? investing unscripted episodes right. soon right. so watch out for that in the ccm feed uh you'll see that pop up and uh if you like this episode today give them a little shout and follow them on spotify youtube or apple or wherever you get your podcast but we got a big topic today. I think this could take the whole time, but we'll see. Uh, we got some other stuff loaded up as well. It is the passing of Charlie Munger, 
Uh, we all shed a tear. I think, was it yesterday at this point, yep. or maybe two days ago? Yesterday. Yeah. Uh, one month from turning 100, which is sad, but I think he would uh, probably not care too much about round numbers. Maybe we'll just kind of go through to kick things off. Jason, I know you were excited to, you said he could talk longer a lot. He's one of your favorite investors ever, maybe your favorite. So maybe we talk with you or kick things off with you and we'll kind of go around the circle of what he meant to you as an investor. Yeah. So I, it's kind of funny because he's renowned for having said multiple times that his influence on Warren Buffett was overstated. Um, I think that's a lie. <laughs> I think it's an absolute lie. I think one thing he worked really hard at was kind of playing the the part of the lieutenant of the second, you know, um, because he was a pretty private guy. Um, and I think he liked Buffett like likes being out there. Like he loves it. He loves doing the the interviews, going on CNBC. He he really thoroughly enjoys that. And I think Munger enjoys it, enjoyed it far less. Um, all accounts say that he loved in-person meeting was very generous with his time, uh, one-on-one, um, which might be surprising to a lot of people because he comes across as kind of gruff and brusque. I think to a certain extent, that was a combination of both a little bit of a shtick, um, cause Buffett kind of has that aw shucks thing to him. And I think kind of, um, being the foil was something that he developed over time and it, they played off of one another so so well at the at the annual meetings but i think there's also a little bit of one of the things that he's was so well known for is his ability basically to turn his brain entirely on one thing right and be so intently focused on it and tune out tune everything else out he could kind of come across as a little bit of a jerk right because you know he would there were stories about you know him Finishing up a deal, he and a partner were working on a deal um, with the CEO of that company, and they're walking out together. And Charlie just gets on the elevator, presses the button, and it goes down. Doesn't say a word, doesn't shake a hand, doesn't no icon, just nothing. Just literally just walks out, throwing it in the elevator. And there's a lot of stories of of him doing that. And a lot of things I take away from that is like as an investor, particularly now, it's so easy to be distracted. So easy to be distracted. And being able to be incredibly focused, um, it can be troublesome at times, but I I think for the most part, it's it's a net benefit kind of thing. Let's you really focus on what's important. Um, I also think he lived a more interesting life than Buffett too. This is somebody that spent um, a lot of his, his life doing other things in 1962, I believe it was, Brett. He founded, uh, started a law firm. Um, uh, yeah, I think it was maybe, in the 50s. Maybe Munger, a little earlier, but it's still- Munger Tolls. Munger Tolls. It's still one of the most prominent law firms in the US. Um, yeah. One of his co-founders, by the way, still on the Berkshire Board of Directors. So just a little piece of interesting trivia there. Ronald Olson, one of his founders there is still part of the Berkshire family. So um, I, I could talk a lot more, but like it's it's just- Really interesting, some of the the path that he, st- he took with his life. Again, that law firm's still around. He was an, an amateur architect. It's a little bit, there's been a little bit of controversy about it, but he designed a number of buildings on school properties that he basically paid for. And there was a dormitory, I believe it's at UC Santa Barbara. 
that doesn't have any windows in any of the actual housing spaces themselves. And it was very controversial, but apparently like the design's actually really smart in the way that it was done. So. Yeah, that's a good I, point. I wanna... He also designed, uh, I think over maybe five years or 10 years, the custom catamaran. So that was mm-hmm. pretty cool when reading his mm-hmm. biography, but Ryan, go ahead. Yeah. I just want to go around and cause we're going to talk Munger, I think pretty much all day today and talk lessons and stuff like that. But when you saw the news, I guess, we can maybe Jason, you kind of already talked about it, but uh, how'd you guys see the news and what was kind of your initial reaction? Jeff, do you want to go on this one? Yeah, actually uh, I found out from Brett, I think because <laughs> we were, we were chatting about planning for this and uh, we talked and he chimed in that we should probably do a Munger thing. So I quick went to Twitter and saw that it happened. Um, so I, I was kind of bummed out, but I guess when someone's 99 years old, it's not like it's a complete surprise. And it I know this is going to sound morbid, but it's sort of been on my mind for a while now because I, I've made it out to the Berkshire meeting to this just, just this past May. And I missed some kind of big moments with my kids uh, that weekend, but I felt like I just needed to get out there because when the two people who you go to see are you know in their mid to late 90s, you just don't know how many years they're both going to be around. And you know we still have Warren, so that's great. But I'm really glad I got to do that. I'm glad I I got to go out and kind of see their shtick in real life and and how they play off each other at the meeting. And you know, even even at at his advanced age, uh, you know, it took took Charlie a little while to get rolling that day. We were commenting on that as we were sitting there. But you know, I mean, and and by the way, it's like an eight hour day. <laughs> they yeah. they sit on stage and talk for pretty much the whole day. But after about I don't know forty five minutes to an hour, you know, he you, he clearly kind of got warmed up and you could see his pace picking up and you know the speech is slow and things like that but man he was sharp as attack everything he said you know made perfect sense he was responding to the questions he was making jokes with with buffett so you know i that's how i found out and and i was i was pretty bummed but happy that i made it out to to omaha one time before before he passed i want to point out too that it's yeah, he was kind of slow and measured in his responses, but this is a dude that's been falling asleep in the Berkshire annual meetings for 30 years. This was like, it's, it's, he's kind of, he, he gets bored. He'll take a nap. Like that's just, he would, he would do it. It's, it was not, not out of the ordinary. It's a long yeah. meeting. I yeah. Mean, even for the, even for the audience, it's long. I can't imagine being the one actually uh, speaking for eight was, hours. <laughs> yeah. I was falling asleep. I was falling asleep when they did the, the Geico highlight videos. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, another one of these. But yeah, I mean, I found out, I guess, from probably a tweet from Unusual Whales or something, one of those aggregators that just do with all cap stuff from Walter Bloomberg, something like that. Uh, Yeah. But yeah, this is a good point. It kind of reminds me of one of my grandpas where he might not talk for eight hours. He might just sit there like, you're like, is that guy going to say anything? But then you get him on a topic he's interested in, he'll talk for three hours straight and you can't, you can't get a word in. Um. What Ryan, I guess maybe you you want to do your intro kind of thoughts here. Yeah, the other thing, I mean, I kind of saw it, I think pretty much the same as as you, Brett. Scrolled Twitter and it was disappointing. And the other my other reaction was kind of that even though he's 99 years old, people have been saying for probably the last 20 years, like, we gotta make it out to the annual meeting. You never know when it's gonna be the last or for for some of these guys. So you kind of I kind of got the feeling that it just the day wouldn't come. I, I maybe it's just been 
so long where people are talking about their age. It just you kind of got the sense that they would just keep on going. So it was a little bit surprising, disappointing, but I did see this quote that I thought was really good. And we're probably gonna be sharing quotes all day, but the rational walk substack said, cause he actually Munger did like two podcasts recently, like public speaking. Yeah. And he's, he said, he's promoting a book he's got coming out. Is, is he actually? Yeah. Oh, I, didn't, I had no idea. Um, anyway, so, so the rational walk, he says, based on recent interviews, those of us who have admired Mr. Munger can be grateful for the fact that he clearly remained mentally sharp up to the very end. The cruelest outcome for a man of Mr. Munger's intellect would involve cognitive decline. And it's a blessing that he avoided that fate. So even though it was a surprise, I think that's a really good point, which is everyone remembers him at his really his absolute peak. Cause he just kept getting smarter and smarter. And so, uh, I think it was just a maybe, yeah, wiser and wiser, for wiser. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> he was. If you go maybe back a little the 90s, slower, ex- but still there. Yeah, yeah, a little slower. Yeah, yeah. No, I All mean right, that's Jeff. look. That yeah. I was gonna say, like that's that's the way you want to go. You know, really, you don't want to live. You want to live a really long life and have it just end, <laughs> versus like some slow decline and suffering and all that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, I agree with you, Ryan. I think for someone of his intellect, who, you know. Just, you know, one of the quotes, I didn't pull it, but I'd seen it a bunch of times in the last couple of days is he's talked often about just leaving time in his life to think, you know, and building time into his day to just read and think, which is something you can do when you're a billionaire, I guess. Um, So, you know, we don't all have that luxury, but for someone whose superpower was kind of thinking and using his brain. Yeah, I agree. It's, it it is, it was very nice to see that he he had that fastball, so to speak, right up into the end. And because I listened to that one, uh, the podcast, I forget which podcast it is. Actually, it's not one that I listen to normally, but I downloaded that episode to listen to the, to the Munger interview. And, uh, you guys talked about it just a few weeks ago and the um, acquired, was it the acquired one? I know he did. Yeah. 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 I think it was that one. It was like two guys right. who had dinner, dinner with them and recorded the conversation like during the night. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I, I was, you know, impressed with how, how quick and, you know, sharp he was even, you know, just several weeks or months ago, whenever that was recorded. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we want to do kind of maybe lessons or any sort of the topics you like to talk about a lot. And we pulled a ton of quotes. I did at least, and it looks like you guys did as well. Maybe we can alternate. I can. I think I can start with one and we can kind of talk about some of these lessons. I think there's just a ton of investing lessons you can go through. Uh, I like to pull from my my favorite speech of his, there's a ton of them out there, which is his USC speech in 1994. Uh, I think he's done multiple at USC, but this is the 1994 one, which I think he was at his top, top level there. Uh, the first quote is, quote, what is elementary worldly wisdom? Well, the full fir- first rule is that you can't really know anything if you just remember isolated facts and try and bang them back. If the facts don't hang together on a lattice work of theory, you don't have them in usable form. I think that's there's a lot of examples here with investing. You can't just say, oh, PE ratio low, I'm going to buy. Or, oh, this sector typically trades at X multiple, or this stock has typically done this. It's going to be good in the future. You can't just like memorize the facts about a sector, a stock, an industry, a management team, and say that the future is going to be the same. What are your guys' thoughts? I guess maybe Jason, I saw you unmute yourself. Uh, maybe you can go first here. Yeah. 
what the, what it ties into me it makes me think about is mental models something that he used a tremendous amount with investing that you know something we talk about Jeff and I talk about on our podcast a lot is frameworks not rules um building mechanisms to help you process and think and I think he used mental models in the same way so that you don't fall into that kind of that rote thinking about just trying to buy the stock, like you were saying, like on a cheap price to earnings ratio, right? You need to dig in a little more. You need to understand the industry, the competitors, what are the returns that the business can generate, right? Profitability levels, cash flows, like getting beyond just looking at a price on a screen or a number. And and the the his use of mental models, I think, is something that a lot of investors would serve themselves very well to study. Yeah. It's also, it's, it's the kind of thing that can give you, or maybe it's one of the, it's the only thing that can give you an advantage over computers. You know, like to your, to your point, Brad, if you, if it's as simple as looking at a a ratio or a, or some other financial metric, then you could build an algorithm that would know exactly what to buy and when to buy it. And the fact that, you know, to my knowledge, there is no supercomputer that you know, has crushed the market over the long term. There is some sort of innate human element, and maybe it's the whole investing is more art than science kind of a thing. But you know, I'll, I'll get to the quotes that I pulled later. But what what I like about the one you just read is it. Maybe this is my educator point of view coming at this, but he he talks a lot about how you learn and 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 what's what's the right thing to learn, and it, it it's basically you don't just memorize facts; you have to learn how to think about the facts and. Um, so I think that quote speaks to that. And I think that's part of the success that they've had is being able to think and not just regurgitate information. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. The, the, I don't know. I think it goes a lot further than investing where it's like, if you're just remembering isolated facts, you're probably do, doing it for like sound bites in a dialogue or to, you know, use it for winning some argument. Whereas if you're really trying to, what did he, he call it? The lattice work of- or to, or to justify it to yourself. Yeah. If you're really trying to internalize whatever it is you're learning, like you have to go beyond remembering just a couple of facts and you really want to get a sense of like the the real roots and the of, of whatever the concept is you're learning. And so, I don't know. It's just, I think it speaks to him. And the fact that he wasn't, he was never smart just to please people or smart just to impress people. He was smart because he was like truly passionate about learning and wanting to kind of better himself. So I don't know, it goes beyond investing, but yeah, that was kind of my takeaway. I, in general, when we looked back at a lot of these quotes and everyone's posting tons of quotes from Munger, you know, following his passing, he was a very like, I don't didn't really remember him as this, but he was a very motivational guy. Like he really inspired a lot of like habits around learning beyond just actually being like a great investor and a really smart person himself. I thought he was really quite inspiring. Yeah. And that does remind me, Ryan, of what he liked to talk about again. And I won't do the, the quote on this, but it was from that he did mention it multiple times, but he had mentioned in this 1984 USC speech is that to be a good investor, you have to know at least the basics, or this is his belief, and I know some people may debate this, 
of a lot of different things, or you might not need to know, but it can be extremely helpful to know the basics of physics, statistics, psychology, the list goes on and on and on history, a lot of, you know, stuff like that. And I think another example of like the, as you mentioned, the internalizing stuff versus memorizing facts can be so helpful. I mean, the best professor I had in college was in this thermodynamics class. And he basically told us we're not going to learn, uh, any of the memorize any of these equations, I'm going to tell you how thermodynamics works, which is just energy in equals energy out plus energy stored. And that can do every single thermodynamics problem you can ever do. And I kind of think it's similar to investing where uh, it's all about like at the core, the free cash flow per share that the company produces. And I don't know, that's a separate tangent, but that's it's like for him, Munger would say, okay, you can memorize all these accounting things. You could be an expert on thousands and thousands of accounting stuff, tax rates, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, what matters is the moat, growth and free cash flow per share, trusting the management team. And that's what's actually going to drive stuff at the end of the day. That's going to like, you don't need to memorize that, but you just have to use all of this information and try to... I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain. He he would be much better at explaining it. But no, I uh, I know Jeff, I know yeah. I know what you mean because let's just use accounting as as an example. Let's say you're a trained accountant and you you understand you know balance sheets and cash flow statements and operate you know statements of operations inside and out, and you know what all the different things are. By the time that information's public, everyone has it, so you don't really have an advantage over someone like Munger who's. Yes, looking at those things and understands those things, but is thinking at a different level. So, like that's kind of how I think about it. Like it, it's kind of like what I said earlier. It just knowing the things is not enough of an advantage. And as time goes on, and computers can do more, and algorithms can do more, not just knowing things is going to become, you know, less and less helpful. I think you know you're still going to have to know the basics, like you said. But I just think that that if there ever was an advantage there, it's just going to erode over time. Yeah, that's a good point. One thing, one thing he thought, I can't remember ex- the exact numbers. Um, so I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but he just, he also, I think he advocated for simplicity too, right? Um, which I think is really important. One thing he talked about was just the idea of, you know, if a business generates, I think the number he used was 6% return, that's, that's what it generates over the long term. Over 30 years, you're probably going to get a 60%, a 6% annualized rate of return, even if you bought it incredibly cheaply, right? Even if you bought it incredibly cheaply, that's what you're going to get. However, if you can buy a business that generates a 15% rate of return over 30 years, you're probably going to get an annualized 15% rate of return, right? So again, not overcomplicating things, working too hard to try to get the perfect deal and the best price. Just really thinking about like those three things you talked about, right? So the cash flows per share over time, um, paying a reasonable valuation, um, and a business ability to grow its earnings. That's and having a moat, having a good defensible moat. Yeah, that's yeah. Keep it simple. Yeah, at the end of the yeah, at the end of the day, uh, I think someone joked like, "Oh yeah, you know, I learned so much from Charlie Munger, but let me go check and confirm this alternative data." from this weird source (laughs) for the third time today. Uh, You guys have a lot of quotes as well, but I think maybe a question we have from Tyler, one of the, uh, the core who I think doesn't join every time, but thank you to Tyler for, for joining live and asking the questions from time to time. Uh, He says, what is a good lesson each of you learned from Munger? I think that can probably, you know, we can use some of these quotes here. 
Um, anyone have one at top of mind who wants to go first? He also says here, favorite Munger one-liner. I'll, I'll that start can be a good one as well. Yeah, okay, they've been, okay, go ahead. They've been showing up all over my Twitter feed and pretty much all over the news lately. They've kind of been resurfacing, and I th- I thought this one was just funny. There was also like a five-minute just like Charlie highlight reel that I that got pretty popular on Twitter. I really recommend watching it because that's, I don't know, it kind of puts a smile on your face. I like this one. He says, I think I'd rather throw a Viper down my shirt than hire a compensation consultant. He was never uh, one. That's when I fell in love with him. I <laughs> knows that's my least favorite. <laughs> he never really minced words. I thought that was a good one. Um, lesson that I take away, I, I think kind of speaking to my earlier point is that like, it's kind of that internal scorecard it felt like most of what he did was not like, it wasn't to impress anyone, even though, you know, they were kind of forced to be public by running this public company. He lived his life in a way that just made him happy and he did what he liked to do. And another quote that kind of speaks to that, he says, to get what you want, you have to deserve what you want. The world is not yet a crazy enough place to reward a whole bunch of undeserving people. Uh, it, Brett, you kind of resurfaced this uh this snippet from early in Charlie's life, but he he had a pretty difficult life early on. I think in his like late twenties, a lot of stuff was impacting him personally and he kind of just worked through it. And I think a lot of people maybe wouldn't have gotten past that, but to his point, like, you know, he got a great life because he totally deserved one. And so, you know, uh, being the best person possible, being a perpetual learner, constantly reading, it's, it's not only stuff he said, but he, you know, kind of lived it. So, I think just sitting down and doing the work and and creating a life that you think you deserve uh, or building a life that's great through you deserving it is kind of the takeaways I got from him overall. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'll, I'll jump in here because I, I have a good one-liner, I think. And I also, my the two quotes I pulled sort of line up exactly with what you were just talking about, Ryan, and also what we talked about earlier. The quote that I love that I, I it came across like my social media feed, just like we've all seen all these over the last couple of days. Um, one of the meetings, he said, if people weren't often, so often wrong, we wouldn't be so rich, which is just a funny line. But it I think it encapsulates, again, sort of that whole idea that you know it's a market you know, like you're not buying something unless someone's selling it and vice versa. So disagreement and, and seeing things differently is what makes this whole thing work. And in a world where there's so many hot takes, 
especially on social media, you know, you could post your thoughts on whatever this company or that company, positive or negative. And if you have enough people who follow you, you'll get everyone yelling at you from from both perspectives. And you know, the reality is, some of those people are going to be wrong, and some of those people are going to be right. <laughs> and you know, so I just like that one liner of like, you know, basically we're rich because people were wrong. Um, but the two the two quotes I I pulled were both about learning, right? So uh, I think a life properly lived is just learn, learn, learn all the time. That's one of them. And then the other one, something that's more important than what they teach you in college, learn the method of learning, which we already sort of spoke about earlier. And, you know, I, I think this, th- these two jump out to me again, I have a background in education, but also as someone who didn't buy an indiv- individual stock for the first time until I was 40 um, and sort of learned well, as much as I could have in the last almost four years, uh, learned as much as I could in the last four years about something that I had, I literally knew nothing about prior to that. Um, I'm sort of hypersensitive right now at this point in my life to the fact that you you not only can keep learning in whatever field you're, you, you've always been working in, like I keep learning in my day job of education, but you can learn a whole new thing um, if, if you want to, and you want to put your mind to it and spend the time on it. And you know, he's lived twice as long. He lived t- more than twice as long as I've lived. So I, it, it's sort of an, you know, to, to Jason's point about him, uh, or to Ryan's point about him being sort of motivational too, I, I think we can all kind of think about like, wow, what might we know that we don't know now in five or 10 or 15 or 20 or 40 years from now? Um, so I, I, all these learning quotes, I think are really interesting because I don't think we, we talk as much about Munger in, from that lens as we do about, you know, picking the right stocks and becoming wealthy and all that kind of stuff. So all right, I have nothing to add. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, someone was, was going to say it. Someone was yeah. going to say it. I had to sneak it I, in first. Um, yeah. No, there's a, it, there's, and this is a number of years ago, he said that, but he said this, but the, the, but he was asked in an interview who, what person was most responsible for his happiness in life. And he said, my wife's first husband you've been able to have this wonderful life partner for 50 years i believe 60 years um she died maybe five or six years ago um and he said because by only being a slightly worse husband than the one she had first that was a very a very charlie thing to say yeah and i think he's not wrong himself yeah yeah (laughs) yeah he he's uh from the biography he does seem to spend a lot of time with the family up in, in Minnesota but yeah that is a fantastic quote yeah I mean that shows how funny he is in in general um but I would say for for me the lesson I've learned is maybe I'll pull it more towards investing is the importance of psychology and kind of the subconscious for why people do things or why people make the decision to buy a certain product his classic example is coca-cola um you can have endless copycats of a cola product at the supermarket but if coca-cola only costs 10 cents more than the rc cola or whatever one it is well i mean what's 10 cents to you like the subconscious stuff there especially with advertising and all that stuff i think it was just so important for myself as someone who is much more analytical kind of had a you know stem engineering background of okay like this stuff isn't very, very important for consumer habits, business choice, choice choices, and uh, and it kind of also leads into the you know show me the incentive, show me the outcome, 
type of type of stuff too. All right, we've got another question here from Tyler. He says, "What do you believe was the most important characteristic that Buffett and Munger had, which made their partnership so strong? It's rare to see even marriages which last as long as their partnership." Any thoughts here? <clears throat> yeah, well, and that- as he he said specifically that they didn't uh, like they never festered on anything like for an arg like he he was like we never actually argued about anything. I'm sure he's kind of exaggerating because I'm. They definitely debated things. And I remember from the Buffett biography, Munger was really strongly against the Solomon acquisition or investment, not acquisition. Uh, But like he basically said, like, look, okay, Buffett was basically wrong with Solomon. And if I told him he was wrong and if he didn't invest in Solomon, he would have made much more money in something else, even though the Solomon position worked out after multiple years of frustration but he's not going to hold that like against him. And he's just going to be like, look, yeah, sometimes people are wrong. Sometimes I'm wrong. We're going to disagree, but I'm not going to let it fester. And I'm not going to turn into this whole thing, holding a grudge. I think that's the big thing is they never held a grudge against each other. And it yep. also helps that they're both pretty smart. Munger said something along the lines of um, never letting a disagreement become disagreeable. And that's, I mean, that's right at the core of what you're talking about. Jeff, I know you had something to say. Well, I mean, so I think two things. None of us know what they were like, you know, not in front of a camera or at a meeting, right? So, you know, to your point, Brett, like they they might be covering up more arguments that they had than than we might ever know. But just taking things at face value, one thing that stuck out to me in that interview he did recently on the Acquirers podcast, uh, I think one of the questions I asked him near the end was, when when was the time in your partnership with with Warren that you had the most amount of fun. And his answer was like always. Like basically he's having as much fun with with Warren now at age 99 as he did when they, you know, first teamed up decades ago. So to me like because that was his answer, it says to me they probably just enjoyed you know being around each other. I mean, you know, what, what, I think if you like the people you work with that goes a long way. I think it helps that they were both incredibly wealthy. You know, like I, it's a lot. It's a lot easier to have fun when you know you have an enormous margin of safety in the sense that you're financial security. Inc- yeah. yeah, you're incredibly rich. Like Law, you, wallpapers over a lot of disagreements. I mean, they they could have really had a bad time for a couple decades and still been fine. You know, from a financial standpoint. So you know that probably helps too. But you know, I think too, like when you have a good thing going, um, you if you're smart, you'll recognize that and try to not jeopardize it. And then the last thing I think, and this goes to what you were saying earlier, Jason, I do think they both they both found their end of their shtick when they were in public, when they were at the meetings. And I think they both have a have a good like onstage presence to to sort of stay in their roles. And Charlie does the one-liners and Warren's a little bit more all shocks, like you said, Jason. Um you know, I I think they're both a little more more showman than than maybe both of them want to exist uh, want to admit, and I think that that added to the fun, and I think that helped the partnership. One one thing I want to add to this, I think, is really, I think maybe critical, especially for for younger generations to really be mindful of. Warren Buffett is a lifelong Democrat. Charlie Munger was a lifelong Republican. They had very very different political views, yet they've had inarguably the most successful investing partnership in the history of the world 
right? These two men, there's no doubt about that. And I think a lot of people in this current moment can learn a lot about not letting someone's political persuasion get in the way of cause you have any sort of bias against whether or not they could be a valuable person to have in your life. Um, I just think it's toxic. Um, it's like putting a viper down your down your shirt, frankly. Um, and it's just it's a it's a powerful reminder um, what people can do when we work together and look for reasons. These are two guys that obviously found things they shared in common, and that it was far more valuable to focus on those things to, to let the things that they disagreed with, you know, keep keep them from working together. Yeah, and I think you know, even though they did. It, sounds like based on what they've said vote differently on a couple of occasions they probably saw certain issues differently but i think they judged people in a very similar way like yeah the politicians themselves i bet they agreed on like judging their like characteristics and and uh judging them as people i bet they agreed most of the time the other thing I was going to say is uh, to the to Tyler's question, you know, what allowed them to be such a good partnership? I think he's they've probably been asked that a number of times at the meetings, but he kind of answers it where he's like, in order to have a good partner, you got to deserve a good partner. I think really yeah. both of them were benefited by each other in a big way. I mean, I don't think Warren would have. If Charlie, if Charlie weren't as smart as he really was, he would have sniffed that out pretty early on and probably wouldn't have needed to work with them. But because he benefited from Charlie's wisdom and Charlie benefited from Warren's work ethic and wisdom, I, I think it really was – they deserved each other and, and they, they both benefited from the partnership. All right. Yeah, that's uh, – thank you, Tyler, for the great questions. We'll still chug along here. Any – for me, any of you guys' notes, anything you guys want to want to pull up? I know we kind of got a mishmash here in the document, but anything that comes to mind from from any of you guys? I mean, yeah, I just few... want to go ahead. Go ahead no, Jeff. Every, okay, everyone. Well, no, talk. I mean, I was just. Uh, there's a few quotes we. I, what, what's interesting is looking through this whole shared doc that we have with the different quotes we all pulled, and I think the thing we haven't talked as much about yet is the times he's talked about. Well, we did a little bit just now, but the times he's talked about being a good person. You know, like the, the the other quote that I I pulled, and I think you guys have found similar things, was something he actually said from this past meeting in in May that that I wrote it down then, you know, in the moment. Um, I've never known anyone who is basically kind who died without friends. I've known plenty of people with lots of money who died without friends, even their family. Um, and you know, I, as I look through our doc here, we all pulled, we all seem to have find found one or two quotes about life and being a good person, and we were just hinting on it a little bit in terms of being a good partner. And I saw another quote somewhere about, you know, being the kind of person, you know, the kind of person who deserves to have a good life or deserves to have good luck, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, I, I think he also was, was very conscious of just kind of being a good person as well. And I think that's worth mentioning. Yeah. Rela related to that is he mentions in the HBO documentary, or I think it was the HBO documentary. You can find this on YouTube. Yeah, there's kind of a highlight video that someone's uh, mashed together of all of his stuff from that. And he says, I constantly talk of Berkshire as a seamless web of deserved trust. So I think it's not just in you know the personal life, but in your business endeavors, you kind of have to have, you have to be deserving of the trust from others. And then that's how you should look at for people you're going to partner with. And I think the easiest example and the most important for 
people in our shoes, and I think most of the listeners here, <clears throat> is looking at management teams. And yes, a lot of this is going to be qualitative, but do you trust the management team? And that it's it's so, so important. And he talks about how there are trends of, and we'll use another one of his quotes, inverting the situation uh, and finding the manage. It's pretty easy to find the traits of management teams, executives, CEOs, CFOs that are untrustworthy. There's kind of a you know pattern matching you can do there. And I think that's a big lesson I've taken away from his talking on that from an investment perspective. I liked his, like, he always talked about how much he appreciates people of the past and how he tries to learn from people of the past. He was like a huge fan of Ben Franklin and he was so fixated on learning from not only other living people, but the dead. And he had a quote praising his grandpa, which I think is now so applicable to him where he says the best armor, I believe this was him that said it, the best armor of old age is a well-spent life preceding it. I mean, there's like, he was talking about someone else yet, or, or maybe he was just talking generally, but it's so applicable to him. And I don't know, all this, all the wisdom that he poured out, you can look back and say like, he exemplified it really well. Well, in, integrity was another big thing. I think if you look at a lot of the deals that that Berkshire did, especially the in the in the earlier years, they were doing deals with people they knew and trusted, right? And that was important, not just from the perspective of trying to get a fair deal, but if you're dealing with somebody you trust, you can trust what they're telling you about the business and what you're looking at with the business is going to prove to be true, right? Which gets back to Munger's point about six percent returns. You're going to get six percent returns over thirty years, right? If, if you're buying a business with the understanding you're getting getting better returns, you know, part of it is you have to trust the partner that you're that you're that you're buying from, and I think that's that's important. And there was a, a an interesting thing with with Munger. He never signed the giving pledge. I'm not sure if a lot of people know that, which is something that Warren Buffett was a big advocate of. Um, I believe Bill Gates started the giving pledge. So this is the the whole thing where billionaires are encouraged to sign on that they're committing to give, giving away at least half of their wealth during their lifetime. Um, Munger didn't sign it. He said he didn't sign it because he had already given away more than half of his wealth to his kids. So signing it would be disingenuous. I think he said it would be like trying to come back from the dead. You, you can't do it. So I think integrity was something that was really, really important to, uh, to, to Munger. There was another quote I want to share too that talks about, I think it's about a um, little bit of that integrity, but also kind of humility and temperament. And it's, if you think your IQ is 160, but it's 150, you're a disaster. It's much better to have 130 IQ and think it's one and think it's 120. Right. So um, I thought that was just kind of really insightful too. No, yeah. It's, it's like, it's insane looking back at all the quotes how he's able to just pour out such wisdom and been doing it for so long. And you, if you read that whole script of the speech at USC in 94, I, I remember just being yeah. blown away by his ability to think rationally and, and convert it into such fluid, like easy to digest language. So yeah, uh, early nineties was, he was probably at 
like maybe not as wisest because he wasn't getting, you know, he still learned more, but he was definitely at maybe the best combination of wisdom plus ability to think at an extremely quick pace. Yep. All right. Do we do, do we want to do quotes all day? What do we want to do with the rest of the show here? Um, I mean, is there anything else you guys have listed here? I, 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 I would add, I would add he's, Warren Buffett is the second best capital allocator. I think I heard someone else describe it this way. I think Warren Buffett is the second best capital allocator of all time. Charlie's number one because he gave all his money to Warren and let him do the work. And yeah, I think yeah. that was ultimately <laughs> the best investment. That's, that's, a good yeah. that's, that's pretty good. Maybe that's pretty good. do we want to try to focus on, we've talked a little bit about it, but less, maybe more specific investing kind of lessons because everyone knows the classic going from deep value to quality. I don't think we can need to hop on that a ton, but I think for me, the inverting quote, which is, I think essentially just, and maybe it even wasn't his, but it's when he talked about a lot. I don't Inversion know principle. Yeah. Yep. It's invert, always invert, you know, that's how mm-hmm. you'll find it. Uh, and I think that's been super helpful for, for me, for me Same. and Ryan as uh, you can't look at a stock, you look at an industry and you say, okay, well, what would cause the opposite of what I think is going to happen to happen stuff like that. But I'm curious if you guys have used that invert inverting quote and how it's helped you. Yeah, it was when I first started thinking through that concept, it was definitely, um, a fundamental moment in my investing career, because I think the reason that's the case is that it is the ultimate antidote to uh, confirmation bias because you we're humans we're wired to look for things that confirm what we think to be true and throughout our history as a species it's proven to be a good um adaptation right it's one of the reasons that humans have thrived um but it doesn't always work out really well in the modern world you can have a great investment idea and you can come up with 99 perfect reasons why you're right all it takes is one reason you're wrong, right? And following the inversion principle to to pursue reasons you're wrong um, is incredibly powerful because it forces you to do the most important thing as an investor, and that's to get it right, right? I mean, that's the bottom line. If you go into it assuming you're right, and instead of assuming maybe you're wrong, um, and looking for reasons why you're wrong, um, you're, you're going to lose you're going to lose more money than you would otherwise. So, which is of course inverting. You're going to make more money, right? <laughs> That's the inversion of that. So, one other, well, there's so many investing lessons to take away. Uh, one that I think about is, and it comes from his investment in BYD, where just the ability to like not corner yourself as an investor and be able to like be agile. Because I remember, like, I think it was during the acquired interview where they asked, like, did you think BYD was a good business? And he's like, no, absolutely not. I mean, it's incredibly complicated. It's very difficult. And the fact that they made it is like a miracle. He's like, but the CEO or what or the founder was the smartest man I've ever met. Like that was my investment thesis, basically. And that was his investment thesis of Buffett, too, I should say. <laughs> it's Same like, thing. Just uh he could have done all the work around a business. He could have said that uh that, you know smart guy, but the business isn't going to work out. And he's just, I don't know, he was so flexible, constantly changed. I think the C's candy is, that's kind of the example most people think of, but he was never like, he he holds Costco at 40 times earnings or whatever. Like 
most investors don't do that. And, you know, uh, he also will buy stuff. He also bought cigar butts when he was younger. It's not, he, he was always pretty flexible and willing to find a good investment wherever he saw it. He didn't really put parameters around what qualified. What, what always impressed me, and I think this is a Warren Buffett thing too, is how remarkably consistent and disciplined they both are and have remained as you know through decades of of being you know prominent well scrutinized investors but also still able to evolve and see and do new things right so like the the example i i think of a lot is like and i know it, the stories are that it wasn't warren's initial you know investment but like berkshire buying apple you know like that tech, Warren constantly saying that like, technology is out of his circle of competence, and then they buy Apple, you know, and then more recently they bought Snowflake. Now again, probably you know his lieutenants are probably initiating you know those ideas, but he's still saying yes to them. Um, and I think you know that, and same thing with I think to some degree, Charlie buying BYD. You know, like I I think if you would twenty thirty years earlier said like oh would this guy be interested in this like high tech you know, like you said, a miracle, a miracle thing that they were able to develop in the future. Like people be like, no, he's a value investor. Like that's out of his circle of competence. So I don't know. It's it's hard to kind of explain, but I feel like they've done such a, this remarkable job of keeping those two things balanced in their lives, right? Remarkable consistency, not giving into fads, not, not thinking this time it's different. You know, I think when you've lived through so much of market history, it's easy, it's easy to like, kind of see that things come and go. But then also still evolving enough that you can open your mind to new investing ideas and new sectors and new industries and that kind of a thing. So I thought that was an interesting balance that they're they're both have been able to to keep over time. All right. We got about 12 minutes left here. Let me check if we have any questions. No, no more questions. Someone reminded me of the Ryan, do you have a fall or yeah, I was gonna say, I can't remember what exactly the quote was, but in that acquired interview, he basically said something around like, "I was looking for it while while Jeff was talking there, and I couldn't find it." The he said something around, "You're only gonna get like five really home run chances," and I don't think that's the exact terminology used in your life. Don't try to blow it early on, and a lot of people think they found one early on, but you know, it, it's really, really quite rare. And you might not figure it out until you've, you're five years into owning something, you know, like you're not going to find that many wonderful investments. And I don't know, it, it just made me a little more, I think, choosy and kind of putting it in perspective of, all right, even though I love my portfolio and I think all mine are the perfect investments, chances are, you know, none of them are the home runs he's talking about and that may, maybe they will be at some point down the road, but, uh, just being more selective and like, I don't know. I kind of took it away as like, I should be more diversified until I, I really see something. And I know it's really easy to convince yourself that you see something, but kind of maybe I'll just equal weight until something. Right. Like if you found, perfect. if you found four fat pitches in the past 18 months, you probably didn't find four fat pitches. Yeah. 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 Well, it's one yeah. of my, one of my favorite quotes um, that kind of sums sums a lot of that up: the, the the money's not in the buying or the selling, but the waiting. Yeah, Costco. Yeah, it's a great for one. Him. Yeah, it is. And yeah, with a lot of with a lot of this stuff. Um, I mean, with them and 
It's not as big of a part of the portfolio today, but Coca-Cola and American Express, they just bought and waited. Okay, so I sent you guys in the chat a list of his famous psychology of human misjudgment uh, speech. And it's hard. This kind of lists all of them out here. And I think it would be kind of interesting. I'll go first so you guys can kind of- 25 tendencies, yeah. Yeah. Um, we can kind of maybe choose one because I think there's so many in lessons here. And again, he talks about really the importance of psychology. And yeah, he talks about kind of the worldly wisdom stuff of kind of knowing a little bit of everything. But psychology was probably- one of his main focuses. He just loved talking about that, learning about that. And that's why the speech is so informative because he has just, he's just well known about it. And I think one of the, that is important in investing. And I don't know if we can ever defeat it, but it's maybe helpful to be aware of is what he calls the doubt avoidance tendency. And here's the quote that I think sums it up. Quote, the brain of man is programmed with a tendency to quickly remove doubt by reaching some decision. So essentially, like if you like something, if you like this company, you're going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, everything, every news that comes out, every partnership, oh, this is great, this is great, this is great. And then you're not looking as objectively at stuff. I've known, I'm, I know I've made mistakes about that before. I'm sure we all have. I think that's an important one to try to consider when, when analyzing companies and their decisions. Yeah, over, over optimism tendency. Ties yeah. ties right into that. Go ahead, Jeff. That that one jumped out to me also, Brett, partially because I think if you're someone who's trying to buy stocks regularly, you know, because it's coming out of your paycheck twice a twice a month, or you know, you're just making contributions to a retirement account, like we're all doing as we try to, you know, get through our working lives and get to retirement, you're sometimes driven to a decision. This is one of the reasons I've I've recently changed how how I in, like my sort of framework for investing away from buying something every week to now buying something way less frequently than that. And it's partially related to this. I found myself rushing to make decisions because in my mind, I was the guy who bought something every week, little bits of something, you know, I'm not like, you know, it's just taking the money I have to invest and dividing it by the four weeks of the month and spreading it out that way. Um, but I, I think that's exactly what I was doing was, you know, re removing doubt by, by making some decision every Wednesday <laughs> for, for no, for no reason other than, you know, I wanted to. So, uh, that's a learning I've had just in the last couple months. Yeah. There's, I, I haven't gotten a chance to pick one through this list, but what was the one that talks about Pavlov's dogs? Do you remember that one? I think that might be the first one on this list. It's just, uh, reward and punishment super response never yeah. ever think about something else when you should be thinking about the power of incentives um subconscious stuff right yeah, yeah. i mean that's yeah, the so advertising. Good ones I, mean, here. I think that's the advertising angle as well people are like well why does apple do these advertisements why does coca-cola do this advertisement of people just smiling and why does american express just do a, these things of, like that it's like well maybe because they understand what monk understands here yeah, I mean, and then the the quote below the the bolded quote that we're all looking at here, you know, uh, if you if you would persuade appeal to interest and not to reason, right? From a Ben Franklin quote from Poor Richard's Almanac, but that's basically what I would say most advertising is built around, right? It it's appealing to interest and not reason. So that's interesting. Yeah, and then all even broader than advertising, it, these lessons they were like. They probably what formulated with Buffett and Munger, maybe more specifically with Munger, 
you know, probably later in their life, like 80s, 90s is kind of when they really got into this type of stuff, especially when it relates to quality businesses. But they made the most money in it in Apple 30 years after. So it kind of is an example of the you know, what he I don't he didn't say this, but the the ABC always be compounding. That's kind of something that he, you know, keeps trying to learn, keeps trying to get better, keeps trying to compounding everything in his life. In a, I just want to hit on the two. Way. I want to hit on the two before. Well, we've still got a few minutes here, so make sure we'll have a few more minutes after I mention it. But um, the two, the two Charlie Munger books that I think are absolute must must reads. Um, the first one, it's been around for a while. It's called Damn Right. Um, who wrote that? I got. Sorry, I got to look it up real quick here. Uh, Janet Lowe. I mean, this book's been around for a while, but it's a wonderful, wonderful book. I'm a huge fan of it. I encourage people to check it out. Um, there's a million books about Warren, right? What but this was it? Is- Damn right. Damn right. Yeah, it's a little unknown. Yeah, I think I've read it. Yep. Yep. Damn right. Behind the scenes with Berkshire Hathaway billionaire Charlie Munger. I it's 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 on my Kindle. I don't know if you can really see that very well. Um, it's a it's a great book. Um, and of course, poor Charlie's Almanac. So the December 5th, there's a new edition of Poor Charlie's Almanac that's coming out. So that's why is that what he was yeah, is that what he was referring to? That's why he was out um kind of a little bit of a little more public than he usually is. So that's again, that's coming out on December 5th. I'm I'm gonna be buying the the print version of that one. Um if I can if I can get it. So that's yeah. <laughs> the uh it doesn't that book, the damn right book, it really makes you want to go fishing up on that that island in northern yeah. Minnesota, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I think he's I think he still went this past year. Really? Yeah, yeah I think they he had the this... whole family compound here that mm-hmm. they, he made, right? Yeah, seems yep. pretty cool. Kind of their own private island, not in Hawaii or the Caribbean, but nope, in northern Minnesota uh, right. with all the yep. mosquitoes. Seems very Munger-esque. Peak uh, of mosquito right. season too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know, that's what I was thinking the whole time. Um, looks like we may have got some other questions here, but we got a couple of minutes left, so any Last thoughts on the top of your mind for many of you guys, and then we can maybe talk about. Uh, I gotta get the name right. Unscripted investing. Little tease too at the end. The, uh, I guess something I've been thinking about a little bit is what does the annual meeting look like this year? Uh, I kind of would like to go. It's uh, bummer we weren't able to go last year, but I don't know. Do you think it changes the meeting in a big way? Do you think it? People will still continue to even maybe when, you know, hopefully it's not for a long time, but when both of them are gone, do you think this is something where people will continuously choose to come out to Omaha every year? Yeah, probably when they both are gone, probably not, but probably smaller. It seems like the the guy that's going to take over is pretty rational, but doesn't old. And, you know, they obviously chose him for reasoning. He's very corporate. He's not the. Yeah, very corporate speak. Yeah, he's not a big. Yeah, it doesn't seem like this is his sort of thing, and neither does the other guy who's also a little bit older. Uh, the insurance guy, Jane. Yeah, yeah, let uh, let Todd and Ted talk. That'd be fun. Maybe that'd be fun. Maybe I kind of wonder, they're both private too, though. They're podcasts. Wait, I kind of wonder if maybe we don't see more people try to go this year, this May. Yeah. Yeah, because of the whole what we were talking about before, 20, 25 years of people saying how much longer, how much longer, and it sounds like, yeah, if you want to see if you want to see Warren, you know, you twenty twenty four maybe is your 
your year. I got, I got, I bought, I got one of these. Daniel meeting. Hey, <laughs> now. Yeah. I forgot Support to get mine. the Berkshire shareholders. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. Nice. I, I've thought nice. a lot about that too, Ryan. Like what it'll look like, you know, post one or both of them. And if they're smart, they'll continue to do it, but differently. I think the biggest yeah. mistake they could make is to try to put, you know, someone up there with Warren or or two new people and then try to replicate exactly what they've done in the past with you know, audience questions and Becky quick and, you know, like all that stuff. Like I, th- that's not fair. It, you, you could, is it going to be it. like a Tupac Shakur con- concert where it's going to be hologram? <laughs> this is I what did. open AI needs to be focused on is entirely. Buffett. I think people will uh, still go. In the I just think it needs to be something different. It, I, they're smart. I think you're right, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need the CNBC Yahoo finance spectacle, which is great now, but it just wouldn't be the same. All right. We're running up on time. So let's talk about unscripted investing a little bit more. Invert, uh, we got Brett, always invert. Always invert the title, Brett. It's, Wait, it's uh, investing. investing okay. <laughs> I, all right. I did. I should say to the listeners, I just learned about this name change right before we click record. So it's fine. I We're going to say it backwards at some point as well. So don't, don't sweat it. Yeah. So we do. Yeah, we do. Uh, you know, our podcast work together. We do a little cross promotion, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. you might see some of these episodes on our feed. I will say again, check them out. Give them a try. Uh, and start listening there. But yeah, what, what do you guys talk about on, on that show? It It's a lot of honest conversations about investing, almost like we're having right now. Um, you know, we we do one of a few things. We have, a, we have some episodes where it's just me and Jason talking about a topic, and it's a lot of asking each other what we think about stuff. You know, our tagline is we, we ask the important questions about investing, but the, the the tagline to that is we we only give our answers. So the whole idea of the show is to, you know, share what we think, but not sound like this is what everyone should think. We're not trying to be experts. It's not an answers podcast. It's more of a questions podcast. Um, we also do interviews. We, we've had a, a bunch of interviews over the past, you know, year year plus. Uh, you guys have been on, um, and you know, then we we'll we'll do whenever. So those drop every Saturday. We'll do occasional. Uh, shorter po- podcasts that we call rough cuts that have a ridiculously silly opening music. Uh, we'll, we'll record them and just drop them whenever we have something extra to say. Um, so yeah, that's that's the podcast. Uh, it, it has been called the Smattering up until about three hours ago, and now it is now uh, it, now it is called uh, Investing Unscripted. So anyone who has been subscribed to it on their podcast feeds, it will remain there. You probably won't even notice a difference. The logo is very similar. It's just going to have a different title. Um, so yeah, yeah. there's one low, more thing. There's one more thing, Jeff. You're, you're forgetting. Um, this is the most important pe- thing for people. To listen, we we make fun of each other a lot, constantly. That makes yeah, that's that true. Sign up for that. Yeah, it's worth so, it just for that. So investing for middle aged dads didn't make the cut. I take it. <laughs> Top three. <laughs> Top three. We, we kicked around a lot of ideas. I know that was your favorite, Ryan. Yeah, I like that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will say as a little tease for the 2024 ending. Uh, no, not ending prediction show. Yeah, I reckless have, predictions. Uh, I'm excited about that. We're going to have both of you guys on. You're going to be on with us. Right. We're going to have some other guests. You're going to be joining us too. We're pretty excited about it. Yeah, our last it's two episodes a... of the year will be fun. We're going to do a reckless prediction show that'll go out the second to last Saturday of the year, and on the very last Saturday of the year, we're uh, we did a fun portfolio contest this year. We're going to do a new one next year, just a one-year stock picking contest uh, with a I'm, bunch I'm, of guests. Guest I'm kicking portfolios. the crap out of Jeff, by the way. 
All right, well, slow down. Um, but anyway, so that'll be fun to listen to as well. And I, I think you guys are going to play along this year. We'll have some other people too, but that'll be a fun thing to kind of track over the course of 2024. Yep, I sent in my picks for that. So that will be exciting. All right, that's going to do it, everyone. Thank you to Jason and Jeff. Uh, let me hit the disclosure. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Uh, Ryan, I, Jason, Jeff, and any guests on the show may own securities discussed in this podcast thank you everyone again for tuning in and we'll see you next week